You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. I want to share some things that I've heard in the last few months or have been shared with me. Someone said, I'm going through a difficult time. My health is not very good. My spouse and I are maxed out trying to care for my elderly parents. Someone else said, I've been watching pornography, pornography for years. I have tried to stop. Is it even possible to break this habit? Someone else said, sometimes I feel like such a hypocrite. Is it possible to change? And someone else said, when something goes wrong at my work, it seems like I'm always the one blamed. It's not right. I don't like it. What am I supposed to do? Someone else said, uh, my husband won't come to church with me. He has no interest in my faith. I want him to know Jesus. So I have been making special napkins and placemats with Bible verses on them, hoping he will notice. Am I on the right track? Someone said, when I travel with people from my office after work, they frequent places that are marginal at best for Christians. Should I go with them? Someone else said, I'm not sure I fit in at church. Where do I even start? Someone told me a couple of weeks ago, I came from a church with committees for everything. How do you operate this church without a lot of committees? Someone else said, how could God love me and let me hurt like this? And one young person said, I've been watching horror movies and I'm beginning to see the devil everywhere. What do I do? I could go on and on. And sometimes people will say these things and they will say, can you recommend a book or a resource for me? And we live in an age where there are all kinds of resources and books available. But I'm beginning to answer that question like this. When was the last time you read 1 Peter? Because that little letter from Peter answers and directly addresses every single issue that, has, that, that I pointed out that has come to me or people have shared uh, with me. So we're in a new series on 1 Peter. If you haven't opened it up, I encourage you to open your Bible, take your phone, whatever, go to 1 Peter, because it is a marvelous book. And what I want to do this morning is simply introduce this series. And I want to encourage you along the way, if you if you will, as you're just to read it and reread it and reread it, let it get down deep in you and soak yourself over these next 14 weeks, going right up to Palm Sunday. Soak yourself in the truth of this compact little book of First Peter. You might find some verses along the way that you want to memorize. So write them on a card, carry them with you, refer to them uh, during the day. I think you'll find God speaking to you through this little book. It's written for a very specific purpose. So if you would, if you've got 1 Peter, go to chapter 5, verse 12, because it gives us the theme of the book. Chapter 5, verse 12 says this, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So this book is about standing firm in a shaky world. Now, when everybody else seems in a fog and they've lost a sense of direction, you've got a clear head, and it helps us to do that, um, to not quit, to keep on uh, keeping on. Someone said the definition of a Christian is someone who just can't quit. Someone told me um, recently about a boy who was having trouble with his report card and went to his dad. And his dad said this, said, um, 
what do George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill have in common? The boy said, I'm not sure. Dad said, they never quit. They never quit. What about, uh, what about Elmo McGrinkin? The boy said, who's that? Dad said, you don't know? No, it's because he quit. Let's not have any Elmo McCrinkins here because First Peter helps us to keep a clear head, helps us to keep, keep going, uh, and it's going to show us how. It's written early in the 60s, AD 60, about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do you know about that time? Anything? On July the 19th, AD 64, the city of Rome caught fire and burned for three days, and a massive number of people in the city of Rome were homeless. They lost most of the city. And then just as the fire seemed to be dying out, it started up again and wiped out much of the rest of the city. And no one was really sure who started the fire, but many people suspected that the emperor Nero had started the fire because his idea was make himself famous forever by rebuilding the city. It was kind of an urban renewal project that he had in mind. Uh, And the only way he could do that was to destroy the old city. So he literally ordered his soldiers to set fire, and then when the fire was dying down, to reset it and to block firefighters who were trying to get to the city, part of the city that was burning. And people began turning against Nero, the emperor, and he needed someone to blame. Now, at that time, Christianity was considered a denomination of Judaism. It was a legal Uh, religion, but people were suspicious. In fact, they were even fearful of Christians because Christians had different morals. They had different values. Their families were different. People didn't understand them at all. And Nero declared Christianity to be an illegal religion. And a massive persecution began that kind of swept like wildfire through much of of the Roman Empire. And so a Roman historian named Tacitus says that Christians were sewn in animal skins and tossed to dogs, wild dogs, that literally ripped them to pieces. And the most horrible thing, perhaps, that Nero did was he had Christians nailed to crosses, covered with oil, set on fire to light his garden parties at night. In fact, we understand that Paul and Peter probably died during this period. History or tradition says that when Peter was crucified, he has to be crucified upside down because he did not deserve to die like his Lord died. But it was a really difficult time to be a Christian. It was very difficult. And persecution is still taking place all over the world. Um, China and uh, the Sudan, uh, Syria, many parts of the Middle East, and most of us will never go through persecution. Most of us will never be tortured for our faith and demanded that we renounce our faith. But that doesn't mean we don't suffer, does it? Because every one of us goes through pain, and suffering is kind of a universal language. When our son Joey came back from the mission field because of cancer, he decided to memorize First Peter, and what he told me was this. He said, Dad, This book speaks to where I'm at. So it shows us how to stand firm, especially when we hurt. It's a book of hope. But it's not only that. It really is a book that teaches us how to live good lives. So we've entitled this entire, I've entitled the series Living Excellent Lives. 
And it's just a rich book about what it means to be a Christian. So on these Sunday mornings, as we're going through this book, see it as a kind of a handbook for Christian living, kind of a manual of discipleship, how to walk with God, how to respond to your family, how to respond to work situations, how to deal with uh, pain when it comes your way, how to apply the scriptures to your life. So we're launching into 1 Peter, and I, I hope that you'll join us every time we meet together. Let's go to 1 Peter, the first chapter, the very first verse. We'll just launch into it, and all I want to deal with today is two verses. And someone says, this will be a short sermon, and I would say, don't count on it. <laughs> but 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it begins like this. It actually begins like a business letter. If you ever get a business letter, typically the name of the company and the address, phone number are right up at the top of the page. And it begins like that. He, he begins by telling us who he is, and then he's going to tell us to whom he is writing And then he's going to explain four things that are true of the people who are reading this book, including us. So we'll get to four things that are true of every Christian today. He says this, chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop just a moment and say, what do you know about Peter? We know he was born right on the Sea of Galilee in one of those little villages there. We know that his family had a fishing business he was part of it. And we know that his family named him Simon. And we know that he was introduced to Jesus by his brother. In fact, John 1 says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And in my mind, I see Jesus taking one look at Peter and saying, you are one big dude. You're going to be called Rocky from this point on. So he kind of names him Rock, which, or uh, Peter, which actually means rock. You ever played a game where you said one word and another person said what that word reminds you of or gives another word? I did this with my community group this last week. I said, when you hear Peter, that name mentioned, what scenes come to your mind? And here's what my community group mentioned. Um, the day that Jesus came to his home and healed his mother-in-law. So Peter was married. In fact, the Bible says Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Immediately they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. So Peter was a married man, which many of us can identify with. Someone said that the reason Peter denied Jesus later on is because he healed his mother-in-law. I don't know if that's the case or not. They mentioned the day Peter was on a boat learning obedience. Luke chapter 5 says they've been out fishing all day. They've caught nothing at all. And Jesus comes along and he gives instructions. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. These guys were tired and frustrated, heavy nets and heavy boats. And besides, Peter is a little skeptical and begins to argue. Did you ever argue with God? Did you ever have a doubt or question in your mind? God knows all about things that are religious like Bibles and churches. and But as far as running my business, as far as situations in my family, I'm just not sure he says a whole lot about that. And Peter's kind of skeptical. But he must have seen a look in Jesus' eye. You know that look that your parents used to give you? Or a teacher gives you? And it's like Jesus is saying, get the boat out there. And so Peter says, at your word, I'll let down the nets. And they did. And the story is that just, the, the boats were just filled with fish. And Peter, they come back to shore. Peter gets Paul's false to his feet, grabs Jesus by the ankles and says, leave me. I'm a sinful man. But he won't let him go. He's a complicated person. 
And Jesus says, from now on, you're going to be catching men instead of fish. So this is someone who followed Jesus, who left everything behind in obedience. He's learning obedience. The group also mentioned a scene in, uh, in Matthew 15 where Peter is on the water learning faith. Jesus comes walking on the water. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and everybody thinks it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. And who's the first one to speak? Who's always the first one to speak? Who, having nothing to say, speaks? Peter. And he says, would you just command me to, if it's you, of course it's you. He said he was him. Command me to come out of the boat and come walking on the water to you. So he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out. And I think his buddies must have said, there he goes again. There he goes again. Uh, shooting off his big mouth, opening his mouth, putting his foot in. Look, he's sinking. Ha, ha, ha. I think that must have been the reaction. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? So Peter's in a boat. He's learning obedience. Peter's on the water, learning faith. They mentioned the one that we always think about with Peter. He's in a garden. He's acting tough. Jesus is is about to be arrested, taken to Pilate, and Peter takes out a sword that he has and starts swinging, and he cuts off the, 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 the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off. Now, I don't know if Peter had a good aim or not. If he had a good aim, he did well. If he's not experienced with swords, just an amateur, he missed it altogether. But I've always felt, I've always liked Peter for that because he's willing to defend his master. You're not getting Jesus, and that's just in his heart, and I appreciate that myself. In the same chapter, he's in the garden. He's acting tough, and then he's in the courtyard telling lies. The Bible says Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. They said to him, you're also one of his disciples, are you not? And that's when he choked. Sure, they recognized him. He's the guy swinging swords. Everybody knows who he was. This is the man who said, if it's you, I'm over the side. I'll walk on water. This is the guy who said, no one is arresting my Jesus. Takes out his sword, whacks off the guy's ear. And now he's the guy who says, no, no. He denied it, said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, saying, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And then a rooster crowed. So you've got Peter in a meeting, getting a new name, Jesus says to him, you're, you'll be called Peter. You got Peter in a boat, he's learning obedience. You got Peter on the water, he's learning faith. You got Peter in a garden, he's acting tough. And then you got Peter in a courtyard, and he's just caving. And I don't think we have words to describe how he felt that night. Every time he closed his eyes, it seemed like he could see the face of Jesus just haunting him. Peter, how could you? How could you? So the author of this book knows the highs and the lows of life. He walks on water because his faith is so strong. He begins to sink because his faith is so weak. He takes out his sword and swings it because he's full of courage. He caves into a little servant girl because he doesn't have courage. He's just a complicated man like most of us are. And then a final scene that was mentioned was on the seashore where he's being restored Jesus has twice asked him, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And a third time Jesus said, do you love me, Simon, son of John? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
Now, why do I take the time to talk about Peter like this? Why not get right into the book? It's because I think it's very important we understand the background of the man who is speaking. He's not someone who sits in an ivory tower and has never experienced life. And I think much of what he says comes not only by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but comes out of his own experience of walking with God. And he's willing to mentor us and teach us. He's like so many of us. He's quick to speak, at the same time so fearful. Half the time he gets it right, half the time he gets it wrong. And at times Jesus is praising him, saying, Peter, how, where'd you get that? That's incredible. The Father must have given to you, that, that to you. And then turns right around and says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. He's just a complicated man. Highs and lows. So many times sticking his foot in his mouth. And he's the guy who calls himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that word apostle means he's a member of a select, exclusive group of followers of Christ who will always be an exclusive group who speak with authority about Jesus and what he does. And Peter's called the foundation of the church. Jesus says, you're the, you're, I'm going to build my church on you and the confession that you are making. And so Peter fulfills what Jesus says on one occasion, writes this look, writes this little letter, writes Second Peter, because Jesus has said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. He is out for you. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. And I think he writes this book as a direct result of what Jesus told him to do. He discovered the grace of God in his own life. He discovered what faith means and how he can take a beating. He had failed miserably and recovered by the grace of God. And so he's going to talk about standing firm, something he learned in his own life. And I don't want you to miss the application right here at the beginning. Because the very things that we often think disqualify us for serving Christ are the very things that God uses not as stumbling blocks but as stepping stones in our life. God takes the very experiences of our life that we feel ashamed of or discouraged by. And those are the very things that he uses to shape us and use us. So let no one in this room think, God could not use me. You are usable to God and he can use every experience of your life and bring it to bear to use you like he can use no one else because he has something for you to do, as he had with Peter, that no one else can possibly do. And some of us get to the point where we say, God could not use me. And I'd love to sit down with a cup of coffee with you. And I would repeat to you what Paul said one time. He said, forgetting what lies behind, both successes and failures, after we've learned the lessons, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, press toward the mark, stand firm, don't quit. God can use you. And God's in the business of putting people in a place of, of service, people who thought they could never again be useful in his hands. I don't think Peter could write these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, without being struck by the wonder of it. Who, me? Use me again? So quick with my words, so fast with my sword, so awful in my failure. You can use me? And Jesus says, you're the man. I can use you, Peter. And God can use everyone in this room, no matter what has happened in your life. So, you're usable. Rich or poor, men, women, young, old. God can use you in a way that he would use no one else. Someone said the Gulf Stream 
will flow through a straw provided the straw is aligned to the Gulf Stream. And God can do the impossible in our lives if we align ourselves with his will and purpose and say like Peter, all right, at your word, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he'll take you through the same process that he took Peter through to make you the person he wants you to be. Because God has a work for you that no one else can do. Now look at the readers, the people he's writing to. He tells us four things about them. Let me just read the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, that's modern-day Turkey, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He says there are four things that are true of every believer. Number one, we're like foreigners in this world. We don't fit exactly. We feel uncomfortable at times. He calls us exiles or strangers or foreigners. We're not home. We're temporary residents here. Second, he says, we've been chosen by God. We've been elect. Third, he says, we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit has set us apart and he is working in our lives. And fourth, he says, we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, which means we have been cleansed and purified. So take a moment, walk through through those with me for a moment. He says, we're like exiles of the dispersion. And he uses a term that the Jews often use of themselves because they're not in Jerusalem. They're in Rome or Ephesus or Corinth or some other place. They're not home. They're a temporary resident of a place and they don't quite fit in because of their values, what they prize, what they love, how they live. They just don't quite fit in. But they're there, and they call themselves exiles. And Peter says that is exactly the case with us. I did a little research on that word. It is the Greek word paripodidomos. Paripodidomos. Demos means people, democracy, government supposedly ruled by the people. Apo means away or away from, means you're away from your people, like the Jews were away from their homeland in the the promised land. And it means we are away from our home, our true home, which is heaven. And then he starts this word, a crazy word with para, which means alongside, alongside, away from our people, like para, like a para church comes alongside a church. What he's saying is we're in this present world we're alongside of it. We're not a part of it. We're away from our home. And we are see ourselves like this. And Paul would write these letters to the church in Ephesus or Corinth or, or Galatia. He's saying, you may live there, but you're a Christian. That's your identity. And he would say to us, we live in America, but our identity is we are Christians. And our home is heaven. When Joseph died, remember in the Old Testament when Joseph died, he could have had a pyramid built in his honor and been buried there. But he said, I'm not home. Egypt is not my home. Take my bones back to Canaan, the promised land. I'm a temporary resident here. We're not home. Now, like so many of you, I've traveled some in my life, and I've had some incredible adventures and seen some fascinating cultures. But when I'm away from here, I, I, I don't quite feel at home. Maybe I even know the language, but it's, it's strange, and people recognize that. And they'll say, you're not from here, are you? 
No. And that's the way some, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as a Christian just a little like an alien? Not like, like a little green man, but, but I, I, I don't fit. It's, I'm a little uncomfortable here. I think in America in this time, many of us might feel a little like that. And he uses that word dispersion. You're, you're aliens in, in dispersion. And that word just means to scatter seed. So here's the picture he's painting of a Christian. We are people, temporary residents, not permanent residents, temporary residents in a place where God has put us for the purpose of scattering the seed of the gospel. He has us here for a purpose. He didn't set us up just to put us on a place and leave us. There no has a purpose for us, and that is while we're here, as long as we're here and he leaves us here in this life, his purpose is that we scatter seed, that we bring life to people. My dad, before he died, had a little uh, uh, player, a little disc player in his room, even there in hospice, and he would play these old country songs, these old um, stamps quartet numbers that... uh, and one of the songs that my dad played over and over and over on his little recorder was this. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And I heard that song, and I thought, that kind of sounds hollow. Because a lot of the time, I do feel at home here. And it's not like this world is not my home. At times I forget that. And I think a lot of us are like that. So Peter writes to us and says, you let the Spirit of God write on your heart. Your identity is that you are a Christian and your home is somewhere else and God has left you here for a purpose. So we're like exiles or strangers or foreigners, but to God we're something else because the second thing he says is this, we're chosen, we're elect. And if you scan verses 2 and 3, you see the Trinity there. I mean, it, take, it takes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to, to save us, to make us what He wants us to be. He says the Father knew us before He created anything. He foreknew us, chose us to be His. The Spirit singled us out, set us apart, and working in us. And Jesus purchased us, like the sprinkling of His blood on us, cleanses us, cleanses us. So He says the Father plans The Son accomplishes and the Spirit applies God's Word in our hearts. So every Christian is chosen. Make no mistake about that. You say, what does that mean? It means that God looked at at all the people in the world, God decided to choose you. He knew what He was doing. He knew in advance what He was in for when He decided to make you a Christian. Whom He knew ahead of time, He foreknew, He determined that you would be his. You know, sometimes we make choices that we regret, don't we? I've heard people say, if I had known what my spouse would be like, I never would have married her. I've heard people say, if I had known how my kids would turn out, I never would have had kids. It's just been so painful. And maybe you felt, if I knew what my work was going to be like, where my career would take me, I never would have launched out on that career. We make choices that bring regret, regret to us but God knew what he was in for when he chose you. He knew everything that would happen. He knew every stupid thing that you would do, and he chose you anyway. He knew the kind of person that you would be. He knew all your problems. He knew all your idiosyncrasies. He knew all, the, all of your potential. 
and he chose you anyway. You are God's elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God himself chose you to be a Christian. But he also realized that uh, we need a lot of work. So Peter says, God plans to work on us and fix us up through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So it says, every Christian has been sanctified by the Spirit of God. And that word sanctified means to be set apart for God. Like we, someone's under sanctions, they've been, they've been set apart for special treatment. You look back on your life, I'll bet you can see the, the hand of God in your life. Why were you born where you were born? You say, I've asked that question myself. Why wasn't I born somewhere else? Why did you have the family that you have? Why did you, why did you meet the person that you met who is now your spouse? Or why did you end up having the experiences and the education? What, the friends that you have? How do you explain you are where you are in life now? And if you will trace this back, you can see the hand of God by the Spirit working in your life, setting you up for something. It's the Holy Spirit doing it. You look back and you go, I I can't believe God's grace would be in my life like it has been in spite of all that I am and all that I have done. And it's the Holy Spirit who goes and sets you apart, makes you His. God sovereignly reached down, chose you. I want you to know you're wanted. He wanted you. And the Holy Spirit comes in our life and begins to work on us. I was in Cuba eight years ago. In fact, hopefully I'll be going to Cuba this year to do some training of university students. Um, but while I was in Cuba, and maybe you've seen pictures or maybe you've been to Cuba, all they have because of the embargo, all they have are these old cars, 56 Chevys. In fact, I got in a taxi with, uh, at one point in Cuba to go to one place, and I out the door and I closed the door like I normally do, just kind of slammed it, and the guy chewed me out taxi driver. This is all we've got. We have to take care of what we have. We keep these cars running. Don't ever slam a door here in Cuba. And I said, sorry. Those old cars were fascinating to me. In fact, I came back and I thought, I wonder what a car like that would cost today (laughs) and what it would take to fix it up. And uh, when I found out what it would cost to buy a 56 Chevy and how long it would take to fix it up, I decided I really didn't want one. I didn't need one anymore. But God looks at us. He sees our problems. He sees our sin. He sees our damage and what we have done to our life. And he wants us anyway. And he assigns the Holy Spirit to do what some of us do with old cars, to work on us, to restore us to what he intentionally meant us to be. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be what God intended us to be, to be holy. But we're not cheap. Like those old cars are not cheap. It took the death of the Son of God to work on us and to make us His. So he says, Jesus died as the price for God to reclaim us and make us Christians. And His long-term vision for us is obedience, he says, and the sprinkling of the blood. You go, that's a strange expression. And it is, and it takes you all the way back to the Old Testament where when they offered a sacrifice at the temple, they would take blood and they would sprinkle it on the altar as a picture of cleansing. And when they would commission a priest or a prophet, sometimes they would sprinkle blood on that priest or that prophet. And when one time a year the high priest would go into the most holy place, or right over the place where the, 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 the ark, the, uh, the box where the Ten Commandments were contained that had been broken, the priest would sprinkle blood on top of it to picture God looking down and rather than seeing the broken law, he would he would see the blood that is shed. And what he's saying is this. It took the death of Jesus 
crucified, shedding his blood to cleanse us and purify us and make us his. So what's true of every Christian? Well, you're a foreigner here. Your home is somewhere else. And you were chosen by God, and the Holy Spirit went to work to bring you to God and then the Holy, to give you faith and repentance, and then the Holy Spirit continues his work on you, and it came at the great cost to the Son of God's life. And you can say, well, what's in it for me then? And he tells us, it's grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace means God's unmerited love. Peace means this sense of shalom, this sense of calm that God gives us even in a crisis. These words were written to every Christian. People who have trusted in Christ, people who have committed their life to him, people who have turned from their sins. This is your identity. God chose you. God loves you. God gave his son for you. God is at work in you, and he has a home for you in heaven. And one of the ways that God works in us and makes us what he wants us to be is he puts us in a church and he puts us with believers who act like sandpaper in our lives sometimes, believers who help us to walk with God, and he places leaders in churches to give direction and to give wisdom. 